Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We're up to chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 19. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Lord, once again, we come together and to study your word and to listen to uh, Mark's teaching. And we so appreciate what he has done to our spirit and to instill in us uh, an even greater love for you and understanding for what you've written. And guide us as Mark leads us through this lesson. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. See Mark. Hi, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. We've been looking at this letter to the Hebrews written by a Greek-speaking Judean to a synagogue community of Greek-speaking Judeans somewhere outside of Palestine, and he's trying to persuade them not to put their faith in the Judean national leadership and the synagogue community when the persecution comes but to hold fast to their confession of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah and to understand that God is building a new spiritual temple and he's been contrasting all the spiritual aspects of the new order coming in to the physical things of the old order going out. In the ninth and 10th chapters, he's been particularly using the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar today, but the uh, Day of Atonement on the old Israelite calendar, the holiest day of their year, as an illustration that it was not an end in and of itself, but only looked forward to much greater spiritual truths that would be realized when Messiah came. And he's using aspects of that ceremony to point out the superiority of what Christ has done. I don't think we've talked about it yet, but the ninth and 10th chapters of this letter parallel, in a way, the 40th Psalm, which is likely speaking about the physical body that God would place himself in as the person of Jesus Christ and various aspects of that life and then the sacrifice that would be the result of that. So we may look at that as well. But let's uh, reread to get started here in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, please. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Great. Thank you very much. There is a lot of rich stuff in this little paragraph here. Now, I want to start uh, everyone thinking straight by imagining somebody going on eBay and auctioning a little vial that contains the true blood of Jesus Christ on eBay. Now, what would that be worth? Anyone hazard to guess? Well, what would be the efficacy if you had that vial of blood? What could you do with it? Well, you've got his DNA. You could do amazing things with it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess so. But he says we have freedom of access into the holy place by Jesus' blood in verse 19. So you could take that little vial and you could sprinkle a drop somewhere and walk right into God's throne room. That's pretty powerful. I mean, what would that be worth on eBay? I don't know. But. I mean, I say this all tongue-in-cheek because that's not what our author is really trying to suggest, is he? That one must have saved blood or a chunk of wood from the one true cross soaked with the blood. That's not what he's saying, is he? That you have to have that physical blood in order to have access into God's throne room? The answer, of course, is no. <laughs> Yeah, uh, somebody said, is that you, Tom, spiritual? Yes, it's spiritual connotation. Exactly. I hope this just kind of shocks us into awareness that the whole New Testament is full of these comparisons using physical things to teach us spiritual truths. And the concept of Jesus' blood, very few of us, would think that we had to have a vial of Jesus' blood in order to experience the benefits that this writer gives to the blood of Christ. No, we understand that that blood is speaking of a spiritual power, of a spiritual sacrifice that's far more than his physical blood dripping down off his body on the cross. There's something much more powerful in play. And again, sadly, the Schofield Bible and the fundamentalist movement were a huge setback to this proper understanding of the spiritual nature of all of God's promises to Israel. So I hope that might shock someone listening into realizing that these things are spiritual in nature. In verse 22, he's going to talk about our hearts have been sprinkled and our bodies have been washed with pure water. I mean, you know, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
And we understand that baptism is what brings us into contact with Christ's blood, but not in a physical way. There's nothing in the physical water that accomplishes anything physical. It's merely a ceremony to convey someone is trying to avail themselves of the power of Christ's sacrifice to spiritually cleanse their conscience, as he's talking about here. So we need to keep that in mind. There's a, it's very consistent through his letter that all of these blessings of the new age are spiritual and unseen and intangible. They're not a vial of physical blood that you can buy and sell on eBay. They are all spiritual concepts and spiritual blessings. The boldness that we have to enter into God's throne room is deliberately contrasted here to all the restrictions that came on old physical Israel regarding their entry into God's throne room in their tabernacle and later temple. None of the people of Israel could go in there except one, the high priest. And he couldn't go in there anytime he wanted to. He could only go in there one day a year. And even then, he could only do it after meeting a bunch of conditions, including the slaughter of innocent animals, before he could go in there. And that wasn't really the throne room of God anyway. It was only a physical symbolic representation of God's throne room. So we see a dramatic contrast in our readers' minds between what they were used to as far as access to God's presence and what was about to dawn with the new age regarding access to God's presence. Jesus Christ restored the relationship between God and man, the one that was lost back in the Garden of Eden. Christ has opened this way into God's presence, and his way remains open for his people to follow him there. In Victorian times, I guess in civilized parts of the United Kingdom and the United States, when a couple were walking in the public streets, I understand that they didn't walk side by side, arm in arm, but the, the wife followed the husband. Is anyone familiar with that or, or have any insight into that? You see that in some of the old movies and things. That, and I, I'm sure this varied from family to family and place to place. But... But if it, in fact, was a custom for a while, it actually is demonstrating this relationship of Christ to his church, just as the other tradition of the bride taking the name of the groom at the wedding ceremony. That also is conveying, I mean, these are sexist, you know, horrible, outdated, outmoded concepts, <laughs> but they are teaching a certain 
biblical truth in the relationship between Christ and his church. In this scenario here, the bride follows the groom. The groom opened the path and opens the door, and the bride follows him through that door into the presence of God the Father. And there's several aspects in Hebrews and in the Gospels where the bride follows the groom, persecution being one. As Christ suffered intense and horrible persecution and then died, was tortured and executed unjustly, he also told that first generation of believers that the same thing would happen to them. And, of course, historically, that is what happened to them. They followed him in pain and suffering into God's presence. This is a new way that did not exist until he opened it up and went in first himself. It is a living way, as he describes in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so, as our writer in Hebrews is getting us to picture the high priest going through the outer veil, going through the holy place, and then going through the inner veil and going into the Holy of Holies, Christ says he is the way to come to the Father. And so the holy place in the old tabernacle and temple was kind of a picture of that way that Christ had to go to get there through that second veil. And I believe it depicts his human life. The veil, certainly on either side of the holy place, depict his human life, as, as we're told here in verse 20. This is a new and living way, and his flesh represents these curtains that separated the courtyard from the holy place and the holy place from the holy of holies. His sacrifice would have meant nothing had he not lived a perfect life under the law of Moses. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice. And so most of us should be grateful that the law of Moses existed <laughs> because we could not receive the grace of God and a place in God's presence unless Jesus in the flesh had followed that law perfectly. And just as we can be thankful that it existed and that he followed it perfectly, we can be just as grateful that we did not have to live under it ourselves. That's just my opinion. This way, you know, is also like that straight gate that we talk about. The way of Christ, it's not necessarily a popular way, but it is the way of life, which is Jesus. Nearly everything, when you draw a little picture of the new Jerusalem, the road leading up to it, the water running out of the gates, the gates, the tree of life in the middle of it, the golden street, it's all Jesus Christ. Every aspect of it is Christ. 
the walls are made of living stones, which are his church, his bride, who are his body. It's all about Jesus Christ. And if it's all about Jesus Christ, it's absolutely nothing about the government of the modern day state of Israel, as much as that might chagrin our Zionist and dispensational and fundamentalist friends. We're all familiar with the account that the veil was rent when Jesus' physical body died on the cross. It's popularly believed that was the inner veil. I now believe that that was the outer veil of the temple, which could have been seen from the court of Israel in the temple courtyard, that that one failed as Jesus died on the cross, and then that the inner veil would have split as he ascended from the Mount of Olives. And that's based on kind of an in-depth comparison of Hebrews 9 and 10 to that 40th Psalm I mentioned, which is talking about the body being prepared to be burned outside the camp. It's a little obscure, so I don't think we're going to go there and try to wade through that. But that seems to be, yeah, I'll just read verse 6 here. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You have prepared a physical body for me, whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin you did not require. When the scholars in the original languages go and, and look at this, it, it seems to be talking about that, you know, Jesus' body was raised from the dead after the cross, but then his body is offered as a whole burnt offering outside the camp there on the Mount of Olives as he ascended his physical body is... Uh, consumed, and he becomes a pure spiritual being, which he has to be, of course, because when he came back, he came to dwell in the hearts of men. He doesn't need a physical body. But our dispensational friends, they think he's in heaven in his physical body, and he has to come back in his physical body to sit in David's physical throne in physical Jerusalem to physically rule over his physical kingdom. So they've got a real logical problem there. Anyway, I like this other one a lot better. The veil in the tabernacle, particularly that inner veil, it faced into God's throne presence, and it also faced out to where the priests were serving. So the veil of the temple was in contact with man, and it was also in contact with God at the same time. And so see how that is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ, who was God and was always in communion with God, the Father, but he was also fully human and fully in contact with mankind. So there is some logical understanding to that comparison of his physical life to the veils of the temple there. And again, he he had not yet ascended to the Father after his resurrection, but from the Mount of Olives he did ascend to the Father, and that's why I believe that that corresponds to that inner veil, because that's when he went right into the presence 
of the Father was at his ascension from the Mount of Olives, not on the cross. And in verse 21, it talks about he's the high, great high priest over God's house. And that, that word house can mean a building, but it also means more often a family who lives in the dwelling or a household. And so that, and again, with the spiritual new Jerusalem described in Revelation, this is really the proper understanding in verse 21. He's not the great priest over a piece of real estate or a building, no matter how fancy it is. He is a great priest over the household of God, which is Israel. Israel is the household of God, those who rule with God. But it is not the modern-day state of Israel. It is all the people who have been saved by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. The better hope by which we draw near to God, mentioned back in chapter 7, has now been realized. The tense of, of this passage is that all of these things have been accomplished. They're not in the future. They are in the present. They are present-day realities to the readers of this letter if they can understand the spiritual meaning of them because they can't see it or touch it or hear it with their ears. The sprinkling mentioned in verse 22, again, is a reminder of the red heifer that was burned outside the camp of Israel and whose ashes were used for purifying the ashes of purification that were sprinkled to cleanse anyone who had been ceremonially defiled under the law of Moses. And again, we already talked about the bathing in water, that there is the concept of baptismal regeneration, that there is something miraculous that occurs to the water or that the water does, but this has been discredited in most circles, and most of us would concur that the water has no power. What the popular country western song a few years ago about this horrible evil man being baptized in the creek and the the fish downstream all dying after he was baptized. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I don't think the fish have to worry about that. <laughs> it's a spiritual cleansing and it, the water has no more physical impact than a vial of Christ's blood would if you could buy it on eBay. Mark, since you comment on it now, our friend Caesar Aharon told us a Jewish story about uh, rabbis transmitting the sins from uh, certain people who were at a meeting he was at to uh, chickens that were then slaughtered. And uh, he talked about how they ritually transferred the sins of the people present to these chickens. He told it in a very fanciful and amusing form, him being a Raise an Orthodox Jewish guy and having all these connections with rabbis. Well, I wish it were that easy. You could get pretty rich if you could do that, you know. And he then joked about that they actually slaughtered the chickens and gave them away to charity. Huh. Well, I mean, that, that is certainly a fascinating story. It, it's definitely not unique in human history in the last 2,000 years. But, but this uh, is kind of reminiscent of a lot of the ancient law that came down from the time of Moses on through the 
Talmudic laws and on into the priesthood that were actually became practices and which never seemed to me to really be something that I thought of as the Ten Commandments or the original Mosaic law. I guess, what really is the law of Moses in your mind? Well, depending on the context, it's either the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or it can be the entire Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi. It's not simply the Ten Commandments? No, no, I I wouldn't know anyone that would say that. They have an exact number of how many commands are in the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. I forget the number, but I don't know anyone that would say the law of Moses was just the Ten Commandments. I mean, there may be modern Christian denominations who claim that that's the only part that's still binding today on Christians. Uh, I could see that being the case, but no ancient Israelite or Judean or modern-day Jew think that. I would be shocked. Okay. Yeah, but I think, again, there, there's I think the, the Jewish view runs all the way to the chickens. It runs from anything and everything that you can find in the Talmud. Yeah, another good, really good author along the lines of Caesar Aaron would be, but from a previous century, would be Alfred Edersheim, who was raised in a Jewish family in Vienna in the early 1800s. He went off to England to study and became a Christian while he was there. And then he went back to Eastern Europe and spent the rest of his life as an evangelist amongst the Jewish communities uh, in Austria and other parts of Eastern Europe. But he wrote phenomenal books comparing the emptiness of rabbinic Judaism with a lot of these Talmudic traditions and Kabbalistic, you know, uh, evil witchcraft type stuff. He wrote a lot of great stuff contrasting that to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the latest editions of his books are illustrated. And it's really quite enlightening because he does write as Aaron does from an Orthodox Jewish viewpoint. But I warn you, his writings are no longer considered politically correct, and they are anti-Semitic. And those who read his books or quote them are automatically anti-Semitic as well, even though he was uh, Jewish. Uh, His name is Albert Ebersheim? Ebersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, Alfred Ebersheim, yeah. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah is one of his works, and the the Temple, uh, it's works, and it's uh, something about the Temple, uh, are the two that I own, but I believe he has other writings besides those as well. Thanks for accepting diversion here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's try to wrap this paragraph up here. You know, he's given yet another phenomenal comparison between the old age and the new age here. And then another exhortation beginning in verse 23, let us Judean believers maintain without wavering the confession of our hope. For he who has given us his promises is trustworthy. Contrast to the Judean leadership of that 
day. <laughs> they were not very trustworthy. Let us at the same time cultivate mutual consideration, stimulating one another to love and good works, because they're about to start suffering, and they've got to start taking care of each other. They've got to start building each other up. And he kind of wraps this up by saying, don't forsake your gathering together. They were, in all likelihood, most of the early Christian gatherings were a subset of a Judean synagogue community because that's the only way they would have had any access to the scriptures, which were expensive beyond our imagination. I mean, we can buy a paperback book for a quarter, but in those days, all books were hand copied and they were priceless. So in all likelihood, both the Greek-speaking Gentiles and the Judeans, they all met together on the Sabbath, Shabbat Saturday, to hear the scriptures read. Of course, the foreign-born had to sit in the back behind a curtain. The women had to sit off to the side. But they were probably doing that. But in addition to that, those of that number who believed that Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, was Messiah, they were probably meeting the next day on the first day of the week in a house or something as a second meeting over and above the regular synagogue meeting. And so the temptation for our audience of this letter is that they abandon that second meeting on Sunday, which I guess since that's the first day of the week, that would really be the first meeting. <laughs> but it's on, on our weekend, it would be the second meeting. They would abandon that Sunday meeting and only continue to attend the Saturday meeting, which would include all of the non-believing Judeans uh, there in the synagogue, and they would hope to blend in with that group to avoid the persecution on that group that is meeting again on Sunday. So our writer just really drives home this, that you need to stay true to each other. You've got to encourage each other. You've got to continue to meet together and build each other up, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. Now, this is the day with a capital D. It's not just Sunday, as modern preachers like to use this to beat you over the head to not miss church. That is not the original context, although the principle certainly could apply. But it is the day, the day of reckoning the day of the Lord, the day of the second coming, or the parousia, parousia, rather, of Christ, when he would come to destroy the old age once and for all, and to dedicate the new Jerusalem, the new age, and so on and so forth. And that was just a few years off at the time this letter is written. So that day was getting much closer, and I personally believe that's the specific context here in verse 25. All right. Well, as we read back in chapter 6, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there was no distinction between the first and second coming of Christ. It was one coming at the end of the age to knock out the old age, and to bring in 
the uh, mighty works of the coming age, as he's going to call them down here in chapter 12, verse 27. All right. Well, we kind of got to the end of the paragraph, verse 25. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.